Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mostry Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Matt and Ted Lee take us into the theatrical world of New York catering, where one event theme, The Womb, included waitstaff in black head-to-toe body stockings, tables arranged as umbilical cords, fake fog, and desserts delivered on city bikes. It was bizarre beyond belief. Literally, the event was designed to spark disorientation and fear in 485 guests who are all paying two or $3,000 to be there. Also coming up, we talk stand mixers with Alex Inews, and we present Nadine Redzepi's Danish Dream Cake. But first, it's my interview with Valerie Gordon. She's a food anthropologist who recreates famous desserts from restaurants that no longer exist. Valerie, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much. So let's just talk about the process. You like to go back in time, find recipes that were made at local eateries, which are no longer around. So how do you 
start the process of finding, let's say, a starting point, a recipe for something like Blum's Coffee Crunch Cake? How do you get started? So the starting process really has to do with, at, at this point, people will ask me about a cake. And then I'll, I'll look up the cake. So for instance, um, a couple of people have propositioned me recently about doing a couple of desserts from Vandekamp's. Vandekamp's used to function as a standalone brick and mortar. And as it has been explained to me, there were absolutely desserts from Vandekamp's that were incredibly memorable, really, really special, that are no longer produced. And then I'll see what's available on that dessert. On the internet, in the library, is there enough information at my disposal to start to piece together the various aspects of the recipe to bring it back to life? But then I won't say that it, it is truly a recreation until people who knew the dessert very, very well and have a strong sense of memory will sign off on it and say, you've got it. So let's just go through a list of these great desserts. Uh, we talked about Blum's Coffee Crunch Cake. Brown Derby had a grapefruit cake. What, what are some of the other great desserts? And then my follow-up question is going to be, how come they disappeared? I mean, these were you're talking about desserts that were beloved over decades, and then a place yes. closes and nobody else picks up the recipe. It kind of just goes, goes away. So a couple of the other desserts that I've done is Chasen's Banana Shortcake, uh, the Coconut Cream Pie from the Bullock's Wilshire Tea Room. I've been working on the Dobosh Cake from Grace's Pastries. And I think one of the reasons why they become extinct is because the business closes. And... What I have found is, and, and I, think the, I think the emotional pull for people about these desserts and the involvement around this project that I do is that we have to make food in order for it to live on. And it's very dissimilar to something like, say, a painting or a book or, you know, a, a, a building for that matter, where they are naturally preserved. Food is not naturally preserved. We actually have to make it in order for it to stay present in, in the culinary world and in our lives. And this is part of um, the allure of the project, I think, is creating a timelessness with some of these recipes that are extremely important and have touched people very deeply. It's interesting that some recipes obviously make it into the home repertoire and therefore they never go away. Um, and these are recipes from professional bakeries that seem to have never crossed the boundary into the home kitchen. That, that's absolutely true. And I think one of the boundaries is that the majority of these recipes are multi-step recipes. That, like, for instance, the Blum's Coffee Crunch Cake, um, you're dealing with a 300-degree confection that has to be made on top of a cake, on top of the whipped cream. Something like the Chasen's Banana Shortcake, again, we have the same situation where that cake actually calls for two separate sauces, a hot fudge sauce and a banana rum ice cream sauce. Mm. Additionally, you have to make the cake and build it. And I think that because these cakes came from professional kitchens, there is a level of natural intimidation and also the investment of time. So are these really larger-than-life desserts in some ways? I, I don't think they're larger-than-life desserts. I have to tell you, like, the first time I made a brown derby grapefruit cake, this is, this is a two-layer grapefruit chiffon cake with grapefruit, cream cheese frosting, and fresh segments of grapefruit. And it looks like sunshine. And there's something so... It's, you almost feel like a sense of relief in the simplicity, and there's nothing over the top about it. It feels like what dessert should be, which is to be enjoyed. You've made these cakes and, and sell them. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what sells? Uh, the number one seller that we have is the Blum's Coffee Crunch Cake. And people really travel for this cake. And one of the most satisfying things has been seeing generations share this cake. And this is the 
importance of celebratory desserts is that they really impact us emotionally, I think, in a way that a lot of savory foods don't, because we link them to special moments in our lives. So what's the next dessert? Is there something you're working on now that you're really excited about? I'm sort of open to suggestions right now, because I, what, I, what I always look at is how many people are asking for the same dessert. So if, if I get a number of requests for the same thing, um, then that's, that's the indicator that that's an important dessert and it's got to come back. Oh, just bring them all back. There we go. I agree. I agree. Valerie, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That was Valerie Gordon. She's a food anthropologist and also founder of Valerie Confections. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few of your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, what's going on? I'm good, and I have a question for you. If you were going to give advice to somebody about how to learn how to cook and they didn't want to go take a class, what would you tell them to do? I'd tell them, and I've said this many times, pick a dozen recipes, make those recipes over and over again until you don't need to look at the recipe, and then start playing with them. I assume a variety of types of recipes. Yeah, you want to saute, a soup, a stew, a grill, something. Yeah, a variety. But very simple recipes, know them by heart, and then start substitute ingredient, add a different spice, doing a little bit differently. That's how to cook. And if you think about it, in the old days, people weren't making a 1,000 recipes or 500 recipes. No, they recipes. weren't. They had 50 recipes, some small number. So pick a small number, get really good at them, start improvising, and then slowly add to that repertoire. Don't do too much too quickly. It's, it's like music. You know, learn a few songs, get good at it, and then move on. I think that's excellent Sounds advice. Like, That's the first time I've ever gotten any good advice in my entire life. (laughs) Let's take some calls. All right. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jane. Hi, Jane. Where are you calling from? Rochester, Minnesota. Okay. And what is your question today? My paternal grandmother made a molasses cookie that was a family favorite. I have the recipe, but part of it is missing. I'm hoping you could complete the instructions. Oh, geez. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is like scary. This, one. this is like a cookie mystery. <laughs> I, I thought we could do a whole show on this. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about this cookie. The ingredients, which are one quart molasses, one cup butter and lard mixed, three quarters of a cup sour or buttermilk, two eggs, one half teaspoon alum, two tablespoons soda. Bring half of the molasses. Wait, 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 wait. There's no flour. There's got to be flour somewhere, right? That's right. (laughs) Part of the issue. So what's the procedure? Bring half of the molasses and the butter and lard to a boil. Yeah. Add the other half of the molasses to the warm half. Then add the alum and the soda to the milk and bring to a boil. Stir stiff as you can. And that's the end. Well, a quart of molasses <laughs> is a lot of molasses. You sure she didn't mean a cup? Yeah. Because that would make the most yeah, sense Yeah, a, a cup to me. of molasses would make some sense. Yeah. It's a quart. Is this a cake or are these cookies? These are cookies, but it had the consistency of a cake. Have you gone online and searched for this and found anything? My aunt has uh, tried numerous recipes, and nothing has come close to this. And we have done some research, and just we're coming up empty. I think you probably need three cups of flour. I'm just going to make this up. And given the other ingredients, I would use a cup of molasses and everything else be the same. And give that a shot. So I think three cups of flour and a cup of molasses. You mix up the batter Obviously, bake it in a 350, 375 oven. Yeah. I would give that a shot. For about how long? 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. And would you have a recommendation for uh, molasses? Yes. You you want a lighter molasses. I don't think you want a backstrap or anything too dark. I think you want to be on the lighter side. It's going to be so sulfuric and dark, it's going to really be not good. Okay. Yeah. And you might, you know, I don't know. There are no spices in here. I would... You know, ginger, clove, cinnamon, et cetera, typical molasses cookies. 
Chris, you know, I think we also have to adjust the two tablespoons of soda now that we've downed the molasses to one cup. That's correct. Two tablespoons would be just a Overwhelming, huge yeah. One half teaspoon baking powder, two teaspoons soda. Okay. And this is one, okay, I'm changing my mind. We need to go back and do some research and test this, and we will post this recipe for you. Uh, at 177milkstreet.com, we'll post it on the forum we have. We've really got to take a hard look at the amount of flour, the amount of molasses. I, I think we're in the ballpark, but we're probably going to have mm-hmm. to adjust the flour amounts. Yeah. This okay. is a tough one. Man. This you, is. You, you get an A-plus for tough questions. <laughs> Challenging right? us Stopping here, Jane. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll give it a shot. We'll get back to you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Courtney Record from Burlington, Vermont. How can we help you? I have a neighbor who grows black currants, and she gave me a ton of them. And I really didn't know what to do with them aside from making jam, which I wasn't all that interested in doing. And there's only so many that you can eat just straight up. Well, it's the same thing you do with blackberries. So you could make you know, a sorbet with them. You can make a buckle or crumble with them. You can make a cassis out of it. You can cook it down and use it as syrup, let's say in a cocktail. Excellent idea. Uh-huh. If I say <laughs> we seem to Why not? Put it in a cocktail. Yeah, but it's it's really good with game or, or meats. It's really right. Terrific. I was going to say duck, pork, oh. venison, yeah. chicken. Sure. I mean, you could just add it to the sauce, but also the French do this thing called a gastrique where they take vinegar and sugar and sort of make it into a caramel and then add the rest of the liquid, mm-hmm. maybe whatever broth it might be, and the berries, and that would be really yummy. I would just make, I know you're not interested mm. in making jam, but I just make a jam with it, and then you can have that as a base and keep it in the refrigerator. And you can do all those things if you have a base with a jam, probably. It would just help it keep. But you have a huge amount yeah. of them, or are you just yeah, a small? Yeah, absolutely. I would just can them. When I can them, I don't use as much sugar as the old recipes do, and I do it in fairly okay. small quantities, like four cups at a time. It's easier to get the temperature right, okay. and then I just keep them in the fridge, and they keep a long time. Or freeze them. I used to grow a lot of blueberries. I used to just freeze them. Um, Free, freeze them individually and then throw them into a bag? Just throw them yeah. on a tray and freeze them and throw them in a bag and double yeah. bag it. And those actually work out pretty well. That's the easiest way. Yeah, but I think they'd be great in sauces with duck, pork, venison, chicken. It's just because Sarah likes to say gastrique. No, I, even without the gastrique. Just well, could you talk there. about that one more time? Because gastrique actually is a cool technique. Okay, you take sugar and vinegar, a good quality vinegar, and you cook it till the sugar becomes caramelized. So obviously it's very hot. You be careful. And then you just add whatever broth you want to add or liquid for the sauce Mm -hmm. to the gastrique, and it adds a sweet and sour. Would the berries go in at the beginning? No, you would add them when you add the broth. I see. Because if they went in the beginning, it's just too hot. It gets very hot because it's caramel. Would you add them whole, or do you, like, break them up? I would add them whole, because in the process of simmering, they'll break up yeah. somewhat. Actually, that's the best answer. Okay. Wow, what's wrong with you? You're being so complimentary. I, I'm going home now. <laughs> I'm not feeling well. <laughs> okay. Courtney, thank you <laughs> so right, much Courtney. for calling, and Have good luck in Burlington. Those. Yes. Take All care. All right. Thank you guys yeah. so much. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. To Brian or not to Brian? Well, if that's your question for this Thanksgiving, please give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Pat Nugent. Hi. Where are you calling from? New Jersey. And how can we help you? I had a question about the difference between garlic salt, garlic powder, granulated garlic versus fresh garlic. So generally, I just buy fresh garlic, and I have some of those other spices, and I just never use them. Well, garlic salt is salt and garlic, powdered garlic. Powdered garlic is powder. It's very fine and granulated is coarser. Actually, our kitchen about a year ago came back and said, you know, we like powdered garlic. Yeah, I think it was sort of not a cool thing to admit. And if you're roasting something over high heat, in high heat oven like broccoli or something or potatoes, Mm -hmm. if garlic is going to burn, if you have minced garlic, for example. Minced fresh. The powdered will actually not burn and uh, work out better. So that's the time when it would make sense. And you might use the granulated, let's say, in an everything bagel or something like that or an everything spice mix because you want a little bit of the crunch of the granulated, which is the dried garlic chips. And when that's ground up, that becomes the garlic powder. So that's where you'd use granulated garlic 
and then you use the powder, you know, say in a rub or something where you didn't want the garlic to burn. I wouldn't really use garlic salt, So though. the powdered is the best choice for cooking? Yes. Um, if, you, if you have high heat. Well, yeah. if you're going to buy one. I usually stick the garlic underneath the chicken or something so it won't burn. But the flavor you're saying is just as good because that's certainly a lot easier. Well, if I was doing chicken and I wanted to have garlic in the sauce, I'd just throw in whole cloves with the chicken. Just okay, because so I the, like the, the freshness of the whole clove. But she but. was talking about on the skin or under okay. the skin. Yeah, oh, no, on the skin, on something that you're, you know, the outside of something. that. You're... And, and garlic salt's, you know, one of those all-purpose salts that's actually not a bad thing to have around. So you can use that, too. All right. I guess I've never wanted to taste it to figure that out. But okay. <laughs> well, well, you got a point there. Give it All a right, shot. All right, Pat. Thank Pat, you. thanks for Thank calling. You. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kathleen Biggins calling from Lincroft, New Jersey. Hi, Kathleen. How can we help you today? Well, what I'd like to do is to be able to make my own frozen TV dinners. And everything that I seem to try fails. (laughs) And I think it has something to do with moisture. When I reheat the food, it comes out kind of dry. You know, the vegetables are dry. Um, And I don't know if I need to freeze each individual portion individually or... I don't know what to do. Okay, well, let me ask you a question. First of all, and this may sound silly, but why do you want to do this? Well, I work evenings, and I would like to take my dinner to work with me. And while I usually prep during the weekends, and say I don't want to have this meal the next day or the day after that, I might want to revisit it, you know, a week or two later. Okay, a week or two, I understand. And I do understand eating the same thing a couple days later. But you could make conceivably a couple of different things on the weekend and then just take them from the fridge and then you don't have to worry about freezing them. The trouble with a true TV dinner, and I remember it well, my mom. Chris, did you used to eat TV dinners? No. (laughs) Somehow. Sorry. I knew knew he was going to say that. (laughs) The trouble with TV dinners is different foods uh, heat up and freeze differently. So, you know, to have them all come right. out and be tasty at the same time is rather difficult. The best thing to do would be, you know, soups and stews freeze very nicely. You know, that yeah. would be terrific. But to have a little compartment with the cooked carrots and then the cooked mashed potatoes, and that's just much harder to do. I did want to suggest one thing, though, right. is that there's something new called super, S-O-U-P-E-R cubes, and they're silicone you know, they look like huge ice cube trays, super cubes. If you can freeze a half cup, three quarters of a cup, what you could do is freeze your items separately and then nuke them separately. I'm assuming you're nuking, right? Microwaving? Yes. Chris Chris mm -hmm. is looking rather horrified at me. Chris, do you want to weigh in here? No, I, I, (laughs) I would just choose the items, as you said, super stew, does very well. Pesto does well. There's certain things that do well, and, and just do those. The trouble is if you want a whole meal. You just have to convince yourself a super stew is, in fact, a whole meal. <laughs> right, right. I mean, right, yeah, right. And, and get some crusty bread. And, yeah. Um, I think it's easier also, I mean, as you know, you should not, uh, we've been told, uh, microwave food in plastic. Uh, I think silicone is probably okay. But what you can also do with the silicone, pop you it pop out. it out. Yeah. So you freeze them in half cup amounts or cup amounts. You pop it out. You take it to work. You put it in a glass bowl, top it with, I do a wet paper towel and then nuke it until it's ready. They also have containers now that are microwave safe that look like a very hard plastic. Mm-hmm. You just pop it out, put it in there, or take it to work, and okay. then yeah. heat the whole thing. That's yeah. what I would do. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. All right, Kathleen. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're so interesting. Like TV di- Did you actually have TV dinners? I thought you? they were fantastic. I loved it, yeah, particularly the ones with gravy. I wasn't very discerning. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Matt and Ted Lee, authors of Hotbox, Inside Catering, the Food World's Riskiest Business. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostry Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Matt and Ted Lee, two brothers who spent four years researching their new book, Hotbox. Coming from a background in Southern home cooking, Matt and Ted quickly learned that in the food world, there's nothing more difficult or more dangerous than a catered event. Matt and Ted, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. The title of your book is Hotbox. So I'm going to ask the question, what is a hotbox? Uh, A great question. So a hot box is just a tall aluminum empty cabinet on casters. And typically it's used in uh, commercial kitchens just to move sheet pans of food from one side of a large kitchen to the other. But this device was hacked in the 1970s by a French chef at the Plaza Hotel to serve as a kind of oven. And the way you do that is simply with sterno. 
those little cans of jellied alcohol fuel, uh, about a dozen of them on a single sheet pan uh, placed in different parts of the hot box will create, you know, almost 250 degrees um, if you run it right. Um, but it's all by feel. It's like flying a hot air balloon. It's really imprecise. <laughs> well, in the book, I, first of all, I didn't realize that you could actually cook in the hot box, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And typically, if you have a protein like a tenderloin or lamb chops, what you do back at the production kitchen at the commissary earlier in the day or yesterday is sear that protein in a deep fryer to get the color you want on it, um, but still have it more or less raw inside, chilled down, and then transported to the site, and then rewarmed in that hot box. So would chicken be treated differently than lamb chops maybe, right? Absolutely. A pro-proofer sort of understands intuitively what the the stresses and strains are. Um, time, temperature, what the protein is. Since we worked in catering for four years and behind the scenes, I've never been more sure of just how intuitive these limits are for these chefs because they know viscerally that you know, the, the, there's so much at stake. It's a kind of self-regulating system. Um, you know, it, if you have stacked the deck so high that you have 1,700 people out there waiting for a single food item created in bulk, and there's something tainted about that food item, you take down 1,700 people. I mean, that <laughs> is truly the end of your career and your reputation. And so you do everything possible to avoid that. So let's go back to the beginning of the 1960s when uh, mm-hmm. the idea of, of serving food at non-culinary venues, not a restaurant, or et cetera, et cetera, was invented, I think, in part by a guy called Donald Bruce White. I mean, could you tell us that story? Yeah. So um, Donald Bruce White was an early caterer. He had a business called... Um, uh, the telephone oh, chef. The telephone <laughs> chef, and it was very, it was like a prepared foods business where he would make um, you know chicken tetrazzini and casseroles, and you would go pick it up. And his customers sort of flipped it on him and said, "Why don't you just bring the whole thing to my house? How about if you did that?" And that's when the sort of personalization of celebration started. It like took the control over the party out of the banquet director at the Century Club or the University Club or the Ritz Hotel and into the hands of the host or hostess or Donald Bruce White, who was apparently quite a party planner in addition to being a caterer. But he also amped up the theatricality. I mean, he brought a a dry sink and enamelware and these very clever and creative kind of props and um, and fabrics and things to like make it a whole tableau. And I think that had just never really been seen before. And then what was interesting is that in the 70s, you know, when the economy sort of takes a dip, uh, large institutions like the museums and the libraries in New York start realizing that they can make money by renting their, their beautiful halls out to these events, but they were never designed to be catered out of. No running water. No running water. (laughs) Barely any electricity. (laughs) Um, No climate control. Um, And so the caterers like Donald Bruce White, the early ones, had to sort of make it up as they went along and figure out how do we make food in, you know, the basement of the New York Public Library. Let's talk about the work behind the scenes, which is what your book talks about at great length. You, You did an event or somebody did the Roseland Ballroom. And someone says, I guess to one of you, ratas y cucarachas en todas partes, which means, you know, rats and (laughs) and roaches everywhere. (laughs) So you had to tie up your belongings or something? Exactly, exactly. And you had to suspend them off the floor, right? I guess that was the point. We had to suspend all our belongings and bags off the floor so the the mice and the roaches wouldn't (laughs) get into our belongings. I mean, it, it was... The spaces that you're working in are often very, very rudimentary. Yeah, I mean, there's so much triage in catering. There's so many escalating contingencies that you have to consider, even weather. And uh, to actually relish that improvisation that you have to do in the moment. You know, if someone forgot to pack a whisk on the way to the site, 
and you turn a coat hanger into a whisk to like, you know, fix <laughs> that sauce. You know, that's kind of a, a wonderful moment for a catering chef. Um, let's talk about this incredible party called In the Void. I'll let mm-hmm. you describe it, but the uh, little piece began to advertise this party. We begin life in the ultimate void, a womb. In the void is an artistic expression of the inevitable voids we encounter throughout our lives. And so this was, just go ahead and describe this. This was a case in which the party planner, um, a very well-known party planner, David Mon, really was designing a venue where he could be a performance artist. And we as the caterer were part of that performance. And it was bizarre beyond belief. I mean, it, it involved... Literally, the the event was designed to spark disorientation and fear in 485 guests who are all paying two two or three thousand dollars to be there. It gave the executive chef heart palpitations um, in the the moments leading up to it, and he tried to sit down with David Mon, whose idea and conception this was, and say, "Listen, in a room that's pitch black." When you've dressed the waiters in head-to-toe black body stockings, <laughs> when you're rolling out a two-inch thick layer of fake fog and delivering desserts on city bikes, and, you know, it's like <laughs> someone's going to have a heart attack in here. Um, and uh, Or someone's going to fall off their bike. Yeah, yeah. at the very least. There's going to be collisions. There was a, a, a table. The table was one long table for 400-and-something people in the shape of an um- umbilical cord undulating down the middle of the room. <laughs> <laughs> which is absurd on its face, but it also divided the room in half, so you couldn't get from one side right. to the other. So there were basically two separate teams working this party. Um, but yeah, and it, you know what? It went off without a hitch. It was, I'd say, a smash hit. Attendance nearly doubled the year after. And so, you know, what do we know? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> what, what do you know except that the odds of it working out were low? Um, you also talk in the book, just to be practical for a moment, about, you know, sort of quick fixes, uh, w- ways of solving problems. You mentioned a whisk, but you also had another way of uh, of coming up with a whisk if you didn't have one. Oh, yeah. There's like five there's, different fixes for no whisk. Yeah, no um, whisk. The first place you go is the coat check. Um, see if they have a hanger. The second place you go is to the aluminum takeout container because those aluminum, flat aluminum lids, you just roll them hmm. into a sort of tight tight roll. And then you snip the ends right. and splay them a little bit. And you get hmm. kind of a, you know, a workable thing. You got to be comfortable working with a little bit of imperfection in, in catering. But, uh, you know, a finger will do um, if you don't have something better. <laughs> and uh, if you don't have a, a knife sharpener, what do you do? Oh, yeah. You you just take a, um, a metal serving spoon. You always have a metal serving Industrial spoon. Industrial grade. Industrial grade serving spoon. You just use the metal edge of that and whip your knife against that. I mean, you know, does it work as well as a honing steel? No, but it works better than nothing. <laughs> works better than nothing. So what, what are the, the non-obvious potential disasters here? Obviously, people getting warm or cold food is always a complaint. Right. Um, not having the food ready on time. Are there some other things that uh, a customer wouldn't necessarily be aware of? Well, the time factor, you know, as far as getting overcooked food. But um, I think it's it's the perils of, you know, these people are working hard. We've seen a lot of waiters and kitchen staff faint on the job. And if you faint and take down a, a rolling rack of the dessert parfaits, um, you know, that can That's have not some good. consequences on the entire yeah. party. <laughs> um, um, sprinkler systems are really, they're legendary. When the sprinkler system goes off, it's like everyone hears about it all across New York City because that, that really is a nightmare. Um, it's not water that comes out. It's more like a rust pudding um, first. There's one bar mitzvah on Long Island and uh, a mutiny among the kitchen staff developed. They were upset about conditions, and Scott Forzaglia snapped off his apron and led a group of 30 catering chefs out of that party just before the serve-out of the main course. And the executive class 
catering people and the wait staff and people who had no business serving food had to step in and try to make do. And it took them an hour and 45 minutes to serve the main course oh. at a very expensive and important function. I think one one of the big issues there was literally safety. Like there was two inches of standing water in the kitchen and uh, and all kinds of wiring dipping through it. And the, the kitchen right. team was just like, I'm not going to have all my kitchen electrocuted for the sake of someone's, <laughs> Fair someone's enough. bar mitzvah. Right. Seems kind of reasonable. Um, as a business, is this just the world's worst business? You just have to be in love with it? Yes. Basically, <laughs> yes. I mean, you you have to love it so much. And, and there there is this notion, I think, out there that there's a ton of money to be made in it. One, one person we interviewed um, in that context was Bobby Flay. Um, and, we, you know, we said to the chef Bobby Flay, did you ever try doing catering? And he said, oh, it was the worst year of my life. Right. Um, I had to, he said, I had to light that business on fire to get rid of it. And the thing that was so upsetting to him was that, you know, he would do the tasting and he would think that he knocked it out of the park. And then the party he would plan over would circle back and say, yeah, Bobby, you're the first in the, in the happy couple. They really want you, but can you do it for maybe <laughs> like $3 less a portion? And he was so incensed. He was like, when have I ever had someone walk into my restaurant and say, right. hey, can I get the hanger steak for $14 instead of 17 Never. <laughs> well, you have to understand that like, fundamentally catering is a luxury product. And so you're going to be at the mercy of you know, poorly behaved rich people. I don't care whether you're selling catered events or Maserati. So like you're going to suffer some bad behavior and maybe some stiff bills. So um, it's, it's really no different. So what happens when things go wrong? I mean, is there, I assume professionals have seen everything. So they have ways of dealing with this. What are the contingencies? Well, it's interesting. So at a wedding, I think everyone now recognizes that if the wedding cake falls off the table, which happens a surprising number of times because the <laughs> table is card table or some right. like slipshod device and the wedding cake weighs 200 pounds, um, if something cat- catastrophic happens to the wedding cake, you call over the photographer and you stand the bride and groom in the wreckage of the cake and have them paint each other's faces with cake. And you turn lemons into lemonade by capturing that fun, (laughs) improvised, like spirited moment. Um, But you know what? At the end of the day, all you can do is apologize. And I think caterers are all very, very adept at apologizing. So do most of the time when you spoke to these folks, were the clients happy with the result or do you always end up with some kind of complaint? No, I think um, by and large, everything, everything was aces on, you know, that was the, the miracle is that as stressful as it may have been personally for me behind the pipe and drape to the host, everything was just perfection. Um, because they don't. That's that's the great thing about catered events is they're they're designed to obscure all the labor and all the stress. We worked in catering for four years and and were dismayed that there weren't more catastrophes. <laughs> I mean, even the sprinkler going off at the public library was a self-contained situation where you know one chef knew just what to do, jumped up on a table, wrapped um, a plastic garbage bag around the sprinkler head and kind of contained the damage, and the show went on. Um, and in a surprising number of situations, the show just goes on and the guests are oblivious. Uh, Matt and Ted Lee, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. That was Matt and Ted Lee. Their book is called Hot Box, Inside Catering, the Food World's Riskiest Business. You know, at some point in all cultures, the wealthy turned food into theater. In the Middle Ages, a roasted chicken, when poked with a carving knife, might just get up and run down the center of the table. And when certain pies were open, birds and even frogs came flying out thanks to a trapdoor in the bottom of the already baked pie. And of course, everyone from the Romans on down through history ate rare animals for entertainment, such as peacock tongues or roasted swan. Food always begins as sustenance, then rises to the level of culture, then ritual, and finally, food ends up as theater. 
And when food becomes thinner, that makes us pessimists worry that we are at the end of an era. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Danish Dream Cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I recently interviewed Nadine Redzepe, and she's married to Renee, who runs Noma, or they run Noma, actually. And we talked about her cooking, which was really interesting. And one of the things that's a classic sheet cake in Denmark is Danish Dream Cake. And it just sounded really intriguing. So you set out to make Danish dream cake. We did. So the hallmark of a Danish dream cake is the topping. It's sort of a crackly brown sugar, butter, coconut topping on a typical yellow cake, sometimes a butter cake. In our version, we modified it a little bit and actually took the butter out of the cake. It's really light and fluffy and balances sort of the sweetness of that topping. To do that, you really need to make sure to whip the eggs and the sugar until they're really pale and thick, and this takes probably about five minutes. That's what's going to give us the lightness in this cake. And the texture is not like a typical New York crumb cake. It has a little bit, not chew, but it's got a little springiness to it, right? Exactly. It's sort of like a mix between a butter cake and an angel food cake texture. So you just bake a cake and then throw a topping on it? How does that work? (laughs) Well, you bake the cake. While the cake is baking, we make a topping, and we do that on the stovetop. It's milk, brown sugar, butter. That gets boiled together until it's a little bit thickened, and then we add in unsweetened coconut, and you really want to make sure you're using unsweetened coconut here, otherwise it'll get a little too sweet. When the cake comes on the oven, while it's still warm, we top it with this topping. It's a little tricky because, as I said, this is a really light and delicate cake. So you want to start at the corners and sort of ease your way into the center with the topping. I actually made the recipe more than once, and I thought that would be kind of hard to do, but actually it's not hard to do. It also looks, when it's finished and it's set, it looks great too. That's right. And there's one more really important step here. We want to get that topping even more caramelized. So we actually put it back in the oven under the broiler. So when you put this in the pan to start, you want to make sure you've got a broiler safe 9 by 13 pan. Pyrex baking dish wouldn't work here because it'll crack under the heat. It gets really nice and crackly on the top. When it comes out, we tent it with foil, which is kind of a strange step. I'm sure you've probably never tented a cake with foil before. What it does is create sort of a little bit of a steam silo in there, and that keeps the topping kind of crisp, but not too brittle. Yeah, one of the things that's a hallmark is the top is crisp, but underneath it, it's gooey. Right. So it's gooey, crisp, and then the soft Soft cake. cake. It's a perfect combination. That's why it's a dream cake. Exactly. Lynn, thank you very much. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Danish Dream Cake at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Alex on News wonders if commercial appliances make sense for home cooks. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits, 
Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Peg, and here's my tip. People who grow butternut squash will usually have some unripe squash when the plant dies, when the weather turns cold. These will not ripen off the vine, but you can use them for baking in place of zucchini and make zucchini bread or muffins, etc. This probably works for other types of squash, like acorn squash, etc., but I haven't tried those. And those peels might be so hard that you would have to peel them. Happy baking. If you'd like to share your own cooking hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist, Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. What's going on in uh, Paris this week? Uh, so this week, I want to talk about home appliances versus professional appliances. Now, Chris, I need your, your, your mind on this. Do you bake a lot? Yeah, I'm actually a better baker than I am a cook, I think. so. Oh, wow. That, that, that's, that's not often something I stumble upon. Uh, anyway, I've, I've been keeping my head low, doing loads and loads of baking these days. And I heavily used my stand mixer. And since it's getting old and, you know, it's suffering, every time I, I mix more than two ounces of dough, I'm looking for a new stand mixer. It's interesting you bring this up because we've been looking at stand mixers and sometimes they come with two boxes, one for the mixer and one for all the accessories. <laughs> exactly. And, and I'm just going like, I don't need the meat grinder and the pasta maker. And No, just give me the mixer and, and a whisk and, and, a, and a bread you know, hook and maybe a paddle for, for a cake batter. But that's it. Yeah, exactly. No, no, nobody needs the uh, soba noodle juicer attachment. <laughs> I, I, I just need to be able to turn it on, turn it off, turn it on, right. turn it off, like 20 times per day. I, I want to be able to leave it on full speed for a few hours, you know, stuff to the neck. I want a big, sturdy appliance, something reliable. But I did not found what I was looking for. Even for $900, the most expensive that I found, I didn't feel it. So... That just hmm. left me sad and, and 
and depressed as, 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 as a classic Frenchman, you know, I was depressed and I tried to drown my soul in wine along with a bunch of compassionate friends and it's, it's a true story, I was expecting nothing from them. But then, serendipity. Many of my friends work in the food business and one of them suggested something very interesting. He told me, Alex, why don't you buy a commercial grade food mixer? Now, I thought they were too pricey, but he told me, in fact, that the second-hand market is just overflowing with great value. So I pulled myself back together, I went back online, and, and I, <laughs> I found one. A 12 quarts, one horsepower, gear-driven beauty. And, and, and this is like a Hobart or something? This was a Dito Sama, which I think is called in the U.S. Samic. Ah. And that machine is a beast. It smashes any consumer appliance I've owned in the past, like hands down. Now, that machine also came with a few challenges. First of all, mine weighs about 60 pounds. So it's... What? Yes, 60 pounds. You, you can't move it everywhere like easily. Second, you can only with this big bad boy uh, whip up big batches. I'm talking like at least, and, and this is very serious, two kilos of dough or a kilo or a liter of whipped cream or a dozen of eggs. That, that makes a big, big, big chunk of bread or a big omelet. Why, why do you need to make two kilos of dough, man? You, do, <laughs> you, you don't need to. First of all, you don't need a reason to make two kilos of dough. But, but I think the problem is that the paddle or the hook won't even touch the food because it's so big. Right. It's, it's, it's not as convenient as the small one. It's, it's more reliable, but less convenient. Uh, it never failed me once, and I've been using it heavily to make croissants and sourdough breads and, 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 and different kinds of baking and pastry that I did recently. Uh, it's doing what it's supposed to do, and this is so reassuring for me. This is getting so much stress of my shoulders. I know there is someone, <laughs> not someone, there, there is something, I mean, it's almost someone, it's so big, uh, reliable in my studio with me, like even inside. I opened the thing, I had a look inside, and the mechanism is so simple. It's very straightforward. I think it's, it's a bit like an old car. New cars are full of electronics, and old ones were easier to repair. It's exactly the same case scenario with this appliance. Not everything is sealed. You can open it. You can even change parts. All the parts are available online. That, that, isn't that like a release? Do, am I the only one feeling released at the moment? It's, it sounds to me the undercurrent of this conversation is that you were looking to have a relationship <laughs> with a 60-pound mixer, so, so something that, that is almost a, a live-in you know, roommate for you. Yeah, that you could, you could actually talk to. Do you talk to it? It sounds like you probably do. I, 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 <laughs> I do, first of all. And, and it responds. I should probably, yes, get, get out of my studio a bit more. But, 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 I, but I guess I, this just raised a question in my mind. And I thought, why don't we amateurs have access to the same quality material as professional? Why? If you are really passionate about pastry, I think it's an investment to consider. Well, it depends what your objective is. My objective is not to create large batches of things. My objective is to create really good small batches. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a, it, it depends what you're setting out to do. Right? I, I hope you're not implying that, I'm, that, that my attempt is to create big batches of crap, but I'm not doing this. <laughs> I'm, ju I'm, just saying, I'm just saying that you, as usual, are expansive in your goals. Yes. It, it, wouldn't, it would be unlike you to do something small. It makes you feel good. I mean, I, I told you when you open the thing, the, the, the mechanism is quite easy, so it makes you feel in control. And when you have it in your studio, you know, sitting next to you, having a conversation with it, it makes you feel like, like, like a pro, I think. Well, I think to summarize before we leave, I would just say it sounds to me like you want to have a relationship with your things, whether it's a <laughs> car or a mixer, which when I was young you had because you could fix your car, right? They, yes. they were things where there was an intimacy there. Uh, and I think that's true. I think we've lost that intimacy. They're, they're disposable. You can't fix them. And they don't actually do the job that well. Exactly. So, and, and we live yeah. in, in this era of, of disposing things. Everything is disposable at the moment. I like to fix things. I like not to trash them. I like when things work the way they are expected to. And, and having this... I'm willing to pay a high price point for this.
Alex, it sounds like you're asking us to have a long-term relationship with our small appliances. Um, <laughs> our, a toaster for life. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex I News. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Alex I News likes his appliances heavy duty, and without all the accessories, I think he would say just keep it simple. So it's no wonder that YouTube shows such as Pasta Grannies have such an incredible following. Watching an Italian grandmother make orecchiette with a small knife and a lifetime of skill is positively refreshing. Skill is such a scarce resource in modern society that even installing a bicycle tire gets 1.5 million views on YouTube. What next? Replacing a light bulb? Yeah, I checked. That video has 1.1 million. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch the new season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, The Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, of course, for listening. Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubeup Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>